I've known Jeff Hubing for about 10 years now. He has his MA in Biblical and Theological Studies, his PhD in New Testament and Early Christianity. He's written a book called Crucifixion and New Creation. I'll put a link for you to check it out. It is a, a commentary basically on Galatians. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Jeff, I'm so happy to have you with me. Thanks, man. It's great to be with you. <laughs> we'll, take, we'll just keep it real uh, surface. I know you could go really deep in this book, but uh, just for those that have not a, a great understanding of Galatians, I'd like to just ask a couple of surface questions and you can go with it from there. Yeah. So, um, who wrote the book of Galatians and how do we know? Yeah, so Galatians is a letter, in fact, and we know who wrote it because in the ancient world, people who wrote personal letters began them by identifying themselves. So if you look at Galatians 1 verse 1, the first thing you read is Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me. So in, at the very outset of the letter, we have the identity of the author, Paul, the, an apostle. That identity is confirmed, in fact, later on in the letter, chapter 5, verse 2, where he says, look, I, Paul, am telling you that if you accept circumcision, the Messiah will be of no value to you. <laughs> or Christ, you know, the Greek kind of translation of that Hebrew term, Messiah. So Paul is identified twice in the letter. He says that there's other people with him that presumably are known to the people to whom he's writing. But I would add one more thing, and that's um, that it was a common practice uh, for Paul to have his letters physically composed by someone else. Now, we would call that something like a scribe, or the technical term for it is amanuensis. And this just means that it's very likely that someone else physically composed the letter on Paul's behalf. He mentions that, in fact, in several of his letters, that there, there was somebody else who had used you know, their own hand to compose, and then he adds later on like a greeting or you know, something in his own hand. And we, we have that mentioned in Romans, 1 Corinthians, Colossians, 2 Thessalonians, even Philemon. And in Galatians, we suspect that's the case because of chapter 6, verse 11, where he says, at that point, see with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. He makes a point to draw their attention to the fact that at this moment in the letter, he seems to have taken matters, quite literally, into his own hand to write the last section of it. So, well, Paul identifies himself two times and then, you know, his, of course, um, relationship with the readers is also explained consistently throughout and those things match up with a lot of what we know about the Apostle Paul. What can we know about the Galatian people? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, there's a lot you can know by actually reading the letter <laughs> in terms of their identity, their status, their history with Paul. It seems that these people were residents of an area that we would 
uh, identified today as modern-day Turkey. Hmm. In the ancient world, it would have been called Asia Minor. And it seems that they were largely Gentiles. It seems that they had a history with Paul where they received the gospel from him at a certain point, but were now being challenged, uh, manipulated, even perhaps pressured into abandoning the message they had once like kind of clung to uh, and now turning to another gospel in Paul's language, Galatians 1.7. There's a little bit of scholarly debate about exactly where these people were located geographically. And the debate is because the terminology Paul uses in chapter 1 and verse 2, where he says, to the churches of Galatia. The, the debate centers around what he means by Galatia, because there's, there's, there are actually two kind of related regions that Paul could be referring here, uh, referring to here. One based more on an ethnic status. Uh, Galatians were initially an ethnic group that migrated to Asia Minor from Europe, or at least the eastern parts of Europe. Um, and so the, there's kind of a region that was known because it was inhabited by these ethnic Galatians. But the, the point of contention is that there was also a kind of political territory that the Roman Empire referred to as Galatia. And that would have included territory further south than the territory where the ethnic Galatians initially had settled. So actually, scholars have two theories that they refer to conveniently as the North Galatian theory and the South Galatian theory. There's lots of arguments about that. In fact, you know, long, extensive articles and book chapters have been written about it. Uh, so th there's a little bit of dispute there in terms of exactly where these people were. But um, on my end, it, you know, the... The, the message of Galatians doesn't depend specifically on which, you know, of those theories you adhere to. I know you touched on this already, but can you talk a little bit more in depth about why Paul is actually penning this letter out or having it penned out? Yeah, you bet. When we look at that specific question you're asking right now, we tend to refer to that as the occasion for a letter. Each individual letter in the New Testament, for example, has its own occasion. The occasion is like the combination of circumstances and motives that prompt someone like Paul or Peter or James to compose a letter and send it out. Um, in this case, there seems to be a scenario that is affecting an entire region of churches. And that, that's, it's real important to consider that. Chapter 1, verse 2 says, to the churches of Galatia. And in Paul's day, typically, you would just have, you know, a church in a city. It's not like today where you walk down the street and, oh, there's the Baptist church and there's the Methodist church and there's the, you know, Assemblies of God or whatever. Like, usually there's one group of people in the city that are loyal to Jesus and that's it. So when he refers to the churches of Galatia, uh, you can have a lot of confidence that what he's talking about are multiple cities in this region 
believers in multiple cities that are being affected by a specific kind of, um, well, Paul's language is agitation. He, he <laughs> refers to a group of people that he calls agitators. <laughs> and he kind of ascribes blame to them for bringing about trouble. Like they're, they're troublemakers. And when you read Galatians, there's, there's a few chapters where he, he gets into this in particular. Of course, chapter 1, verses 6 through 12 is where he introduces the idea that something's wrong. Chapter 4, um, verses 12 through 20, he gets into more detail about what happened. He refers to some more input. Uh, inform- he refers to some more information in Galatians five, verses two through twelve, and then the nail in the coffin, kind of okay, to seal his interpretation and his understanding of what his understanding of what's happening is Galatians six, eleven through seventeen. Now, I'm going to just briefly summarize the information that I think you get when you look at those passages. So here's my description of. What happened, right? Paul initially went to proclaim the message of Jesus to these people, okay, this region, multiple cities. He shared the gospel with them, even in spite of his own hardship, which came about, in my view, through persecution. But as he's sharing this gospel, the people of these churches were convinced not only by his testimony, but by miracles, Chapter 3 tells us this, the the outpouring of the Spirit. So there's a real confirmation of the message. And according to chapter 5, Paul says, you guys were running well. In other words, they received the gospel in spite of opposition, in spite of Paul's own suffering, but they they received it by faith. They They received the Spirit. They saw miracles, and they were experiencing hardship, but they were doing great. But the more you read chapter 4 and 5, you realize, like, some one and more than likely some group of people started to cause problems for these believers and their methodology, according to chapter four. If you look at verse 17, Paul says, they are making much of you, but not for a good reason. Really, they want to lock you out so that you can make much of them. So Paul's approach is like, Guys, they are flattering you. They are blowing, you know, smoke in your direction so that you think they really care about you, but they don't. In fact, they want you to come to them so that they can approve you. So he is introducing a a group of people, troublemakers, agitators, that are operating in multiple cities of this region in order to manipulate and to undermine uh, the, the, the believers by introducing a false message and by seeking to, to change their loyalty, right? The, the believers initially were loyal to Jesus and they were loyal to Paul as an apostle who, as Paul says, he's like their parent. He's like a mother who's in birth with them. He's in labor with them again. So they're trying to switch up their loyalty so that they will be loyal to the agitators, the troublemakers, instead of to Paul. Now, there are two, then, real issues of, of contention that Paul is dealing with in the letter. And the first one is, a, is, in fact, like a content issue, right? A theological issue. The agitators, we learn, 
are specifically looking to get these believers circumcised, right? That, that becomes very clear in chapter 5, verse 2, and, and on through um, verse 11 and 12 there. Hmm. Now, why would they want to do that? Well, clearly, they have an agenda to integrate these believers into a kind of Jewish hmm. environment. And, you know, there are reasons for that, but that, that is their objective. And it seems that what they've been trying to do is communicate to these Christians, these followers of Jesus, like, hey, look, you know, it's so great that you guys have an interest in our God. You know, it's, it's amazing. You, you're interested in Abraham. You, you, you love Isaiah, the prophets, and you're, you know, you believe in a Jewish king, Jesus, you know, Yeshua. But listen, if you really want to be one of us, well, then, then you have to come all the way. You know, you, you have to get circumcised and then you have to live according to our, to our law. So this message, you know, it, it seems that it's being introduced not in a way that contains like physical violence against the believers, but maybe something more subtle than that. Where it's like, man, we so admire you Gentiles who ha have all of a sudden a passion for ethics, a passion for morality, a passion for uh, what we would call, um, sorry, lost the word right now. What is, sorry, what is the word for one belief in one God? <laughs> Mono, monotheism? monotheism. <laughs> okay, so he's saying, man, you have a passion for morality all of a sudden, you have a concern for eth ethics and right living. All of a sudden you believe in monotheism, there's only one God, this is wonderful. But listen, you're not quite there yet. You know, if you, if you really wanna be righteous, right? If you really wanna be sons and daughters of God, if you really wanna be a part of God's household and family, well, then you know, you gotta be circumcised. You gotta become one of us we're the ones you got the Bible from. We're the ones you got Jesus from. Listen, come on, just come all the way through. Well, Paul becomes aware of this and he says, no, <laughs> that is not the gospel I preached to you. Just look at your story. Look at your history. Remember, you didn't, be, you didn't get the spirit. You didn't see miracles because you signed on to get circumcised or because you started observing the Torah. You saw that stuff because you believed in a crucified and risen king. That is the source of your identity. That's the source of your righteousness. That's the source of your membership. So on the one hand, Paul is making an, a theological claim in Galatians, and he's arguing for an accurate understanding of his message. But I tell you, he's also arguing on a second front. And this has to do with where this false message originated. Mm. In other words, a lot of times when folks read Galatians, they focus on that theological angle. And it's true, and it's right, but it's incomplete. In fact, you start to realize it's incomplete when you read the whole first chapter and a half, and it doesn't really have much to do with theology. and has everything to do with autobiography. Paul telling his own story, identifying himself on both sides of a critical issue that shapes the rest of the letter. And that issue is persecution. Paul identifies himself both as a persecutor of the church in chapter one, and then someone who was persecuted following that in chapter two and chapter five. And he says, like, you have to understand something about me, my story. I understand where these people are coming from who are trying to pressure you into doing that. I used to do that. 
And you have to understand something about something else about me is that now that I'm on the other side, now that I represent Jesus rather than oppose him, I see that opposition, I see that persecution as a validating factor in my apostleship, in my ministry, and with my gospel proclamation. It's not something to be avoided. It's something to be welcomed. So the real question for Paul is, where does this false message come from? And the typical answer, at least uh, that I often read in other scholars, is that these agitators, these troublemakers were just devoted Jews who loved their religion and they loved the Lord. And they wanted to win these people over to Judaism because of their passion for the law. Problem is, it's not what Paul says. If you read chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, he exposes the underlying motive of these troublemakers. Look what he says. He says, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. And only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised in order to boast in your flesh. Man, this is a, this is a lightning bolt right here. It, it reveals Paul's understanding into these troublemakers. They're not even sincere. They, they don't, they're not trying to convert you because they care so deeply for the law. They're trying to convert you for one reason. They're scared. They themselves are afraid of suffering persecution. And that is what's motivating them to try to get you to come their way. So for Paul's point of view, it's not just a theological question. It's what triggered the bad theology. It's not just a theological dispute. It's a very practical one. From Paul's point of view, your fear of persecution has generated a false gospel. So it's, it's not just, oh man, we just, they just disagree with us theologically. It's no, they're cowardly and a as they're cowardly. And as a result, they have generated another message to relieve them of the pressure and the potential suffering that comes from holding to the true gospel that Paul had already articulated. That's fantastic. Uh, what, how would you say such a thing makes its way into our day? <laughs> well, it's not too hard to imagine, is it? I mean, <laughs> look, in here, here's something, Paul, like, let me just quote this from Paul, right? This is the, the very next verse, chapter six, verse 14. Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of yes. our Lord Jesus Christ, by which, and listen to this, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Do you know, do you know what's so radical about the gospel that Paul preached? Hmm. Is that he refused to take a side, either, either, either circumcision or uncircumcision. He said, you're wasting your time. It's, you're not thinking straight. This isn't about either one of those. It's about new creation. Paul stands in a place where he says, your arguments on both sides are irrelevant. Mm -hmm. it's, it, this is not about you better get circumcised or you better not. This is about new creation. 
and the crucifixion of the world and I to it. You say, well, bro, that's, you know, that's tremendous. I love your language. Yeah. But what does that even mean? (laughs) Right. That's the issue. What does that even mean? What it means is that from Paul's point of view, people who are not in Jesus Christ are ruled by something called the cosmos. Wow. The world. In chapter four, he refers to the stoicheia of the world, the, the, the elemental powers of the world wow. that govern human beings in such a way that they are not free, as Paul says they should be in chapter five. They are not free to serve God. They are not free to love God. They are not free to serve one another. They are not free to walk in the spirit. They're under bondage. And because of that, people in the world system need liberation. So, you know, from his point of view, the gospel doesn't just guarantee forgiveness, which it does, and it's absolutely necessary, you know, Romans 5, but it also brings a liberation, Romans 6, right? If if you're buried with him, you know, then then you're free. You are no longer under the bondage of sin and flesh and law and world. But here's here's the real scenario, is that that transformation of our of our heart and our, you know, like our, our spirit, that can happen in an instant. Like we can confess sin, believe the gospel, be immersed in the spirit in water and, and enter the kingdom that can happen in a heartbeat. But the mindset, right? The mindset that we have cultivated for years, some of us decades, that doesn't change overnight. And, and this is why Paul follows up, for example, in Romans, his, his explanation of the gospel for 11 chapters, Romans 1 through 11, with the first verse of chapter 12, he says, look, you got to present your bodies and then you have to renew your minds. Mm. Because if you don't, then it's like, man, you've been baptized into a new world. You've, you've entered into new creation, but your mindset, your mentality, the way you think, your values, your priorities, they're still being governed by a world that's been crucified, Paul says. Wow. It's, de- it's dead. It, God's put it to death at the cross. It doesn't have power over you anymore. So why would you go back to what that world system taught you and resubmit yourself to it? Right? So like, this is what Paul says in, in Galatians 4, verse 9. He says, now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again? Wow. To the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to become again. It's, it's, uh, you know, there's a word for this. I think it's called, um, man, I, I won't, I won't mess it up, but there's a a sociological reality where if you've been a prisoner and then you get set free, you actually in a way yearn for your imprisonment again, because you don't know you're scared of being free from that because it's all you've known. Wow. It's all you've ever experienced. And Paul's kind of saying this to the Galatians. What are you guys doing? Like, you've been liberated from this cosmos. Now, why do you want to crawl back under it? Like, it's for, it's for freedom you've been liberated. Don't, don't jump back under there. Mm-hmm. So when you ask me, like, man, how is it possible in our generation? Man, our, how is it possible in our generation to see this? Listen, you and me and believers who have come to the Lord, especially after living years in in sin or in rebellion or in devotion to other gods or religions, 
we all have a grid. We all have a way that we process reality. And if we don't renew the mind so that we can be transformed, mm -hmm. we're going to keep interpreting stuff through the lens that we've built for, for all those years. Mm -hmm. So it's not hard to think of someone operating out of fear you know, like a fear of loss, a fear of loss of property or status, a fear of loss of esteem mm -hmm. in, in other people's eyes. And because of that fear of loss, they might introduce a compromise into their own way of thinking, into their own way of living. They might, they might introduce a false understanding of the truth, not because they've been convinced by it using logic or even theological arguments, but because, man, fear is crippling, isn't it? Like fear is crippling. And if people aren't free, and if they're operating out of mentality that says, man, I have to avoid pain, I have to avoid suffering, I have to avoid hardship, I have to avoid opponents or opposition, then let me just massage this message a little bit so that it can be more, uh, more acceptable to people mm. who, you know, as a result of that, I won't have to go through that anymore. Now, obviously, there are extreme examples of this, right? Like in our generation, th there are people suffering under persecution. They're losing their lives. And they, they have a regular challenge and a cross to bear that has to do with, all right, you're in a prison in China. You're in a prison in North Korea. You're arrested in northern India for preaching the gospel. What are you going to do? Are you going to take the beating? Are you going to take the unjust imprisonment? Are you going to lay down your life? I mean, these are real things. They're happening now. Um, and so there's always the temptation that's present for the body of Christ in different ways. Now, in America, we're, we're not in that kind of a place, but we've got other temptations. The, you know, the temptations to identify ourselves uh, in terms of our prosperity, the, the temptations to identify ourselves in terms of, of a political agenda, the temptation to identify ourselves uh, in terms of an ethnic status or something like that. Like we, there's always because the world system, even though those of us who are in Jesus, we're free, it still exists. It's still around. It's still governing unbelievers. Uh, it's still affecting the minds of those who aren't in the kingdom. So there's always the opportunity to abandon these core gospel values and substitute some other ones that unfortunately introduce a compromise, a distortion, a perversion, as Paul says. So, you know, in a way, we, we always have to be alert to this. And we always have to be coming to the cross again and afresh to renew our vision of Jesus. And I think that's why Paul says that in, in Galatians 3.1. He says, don't you remember? You know, like it was before your eyes that Jesus, the Messiah, the King, was publicly portrayed as crucified. Like, I didn't come telling you anything else, but that the King suffered for you. And you saw in my body, I suffered for you. So why would you think you're exempt now? You know, like, so I do think it's, a, it's very important that we keep coming back to the place of the cross because it reveals not only the love and the heart of God, but the tenacity of God. Like his absolute devotion to his purpose, which is then matched by the, you know, the apostolic example of Paul and others. And then like, we're invited into it as believers. And not every one of us is going to face, you know, the loss of our life, you know, our, the, the cutting off of our head or whatever. But 
But I think we can all expect to face opposition of one form or another. And in that sense, man, Galatians should speak to all of us. It should inspire us. It should fill us with courage and faith. And it should remind us like, man, we're, we're not the first ones to do this. We can walk in the footsteps of the Lord himself, as well as others who've gone before. So the answer to this next question is probably already inside things you've already said, but uh, what for you personally is your favorite thing about this book or a portion of this actual book? (laughs) Man. Personally. Yeah, no, that's a rough question. I mean, as you mentioned, I, I did write a book about it and I, and one of the reasons is because of the integration for me, of cross and spirit. Wow. You know, I, I come from a background that is charismatic. It's Pentecostal. And I'm, I'm absolutely on board with the power of the spirit and the, and the manifestation of the spirit for, for healing, for deliverance, for life, for everything. And yet what I noticed in some of the churches that I was connected to was, was that there was kind of a denial of the other side of living the Christian life, which meant, man, hardships, suffering, opposition, rejection, tribulation, you know, of various types. And there was this tendency to say, oh, no, brother, that's, you know, Jesus suffered for us so that we don't have to suffer at all. And, you know, I said, well, that sounds great. And I wish you were right. But... When you read the Bible, I don't know how you come up with that, especially a book like Galatians, where Paul is telling them, man, walk in the spirit. He's telling them, yeah, you experience power, you experience miracles. But then he's also telling them, look, the the cross being crucified to the world and it to us, that is going to mean trouble. You know, he said in verse chapter five, verse 11, if I am preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In other words, Paul isn't, he's, he's continuing to experience persecution as an apostle. Second Corinthians 11, he, he, he lists a catalog of what he calls like his qualifying marks for ministry, right? Now you ask somebody today, what, you know, what qualifies you to be a minister, um, in ministry? And they're going to start listing, well, I preached at this campaign in South America and we saw people healed and this many people have been saved and born again and this many churches have been planted, whatever. And look, I'm not minimizing any of that, but Paul's resume in 2 Corinthians 11 was constituted by things like, well, I've gone without food. I've gone, you know, without lodging. I've been in danger in the city, danger in the country. I spent a night in the day at, at, in the deep, you know, in the, in the water, in the sea. Um, I've been harassed by people outside. I've been harassed by false brothers inside. You know, I mean, he's basically listing off his sufferings, saying, Hey, these are the things that legitimize the work that I'm doing. Not just the miracles, it's the hardships. And even at the end of Galatians, chapter 6, verse 17, from now on, stop, let, let, let no one keep causing me trouble because I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. What's he getting at there? Well, I think it's, in my view, it's, it's the scars from persecution. <laughs> this dude has been beaten with rods. He's been stoned. He's been whipped, think about it, five times by, by synagogue rulers. If, if it's me, after the first time I get whipped in a synagogue, I'm not going back. <laughs> like, okay, this is how they're going to react. But he actually submitted to it, mm-hmm. like voluntarily, five different times. 
So look, you know, as I read Galatians, I'm thinking to myself, look, this is not just, this is just so central to the reality of the gospel that the kingdom has invaded the present world system, but it hasn't immediately removed all evil. In fact, in Galatians 1.4, Paul says, you guys are living in the present evil age, even though you're also free, even though you're also in the spirit, even though you're also uh, under the rule of Jesus. So I always, you know, in, in Galatians, I'm always, like, I feel like I'm always drawn back there because of the powerful integration of power and suffering that marks not only the ministry of Paul, not only the apostolic gospel and witness, like you reading Acts, but the identity of Jesus himself. So that, you know, that passage, uh, you know, Galatians 6, 14 and 15 there, that, that, that's what my book is essentially about. And that's really the passage that I go to. I mean, look, this is the bottom line. Mm-hmm. We need to operate as people who have been born into a new world, wow. even though the other one is still existing all around us. And you want to know how to govern that? You want to know how to map out a way of life in the context of that? Then you got to look at the cross. And you have to remember this. Like, there is going to be opposition. There's going to be hardships. James describes them as various kinds of trials. (laughs) That's going to mark reality for us. But because we're in new creation, we don't have to bow we do not have to lay down in front of these things. Man, we stand with confidence. And we know that because of that cross, not only are we forgiven, but we're liberated. Not only are we recipients of the love of God in Jesus Christ, but now we are empowered to walk in the way that he walked. Yeah, man. Let's look. Let's pray for miracles. Let's let's have prophecies. Let's have angelic visitations. Let's have revival and an outpouring of the Spirit. However, let's also remember what the apostles faced when they had all that stuff. People getting imprisoned, people getting driven out of their homes, moved out of their cities, having to relocate, having to be on the run, having to go down through a wall in a basket to get out of a city to spare their lives. Let's not read the the testimony of the scripture in a one-sided way. Let's walk like Jesus walked. Let's walk like the apostles walked. Let's be consistent with that apostolic gospel. So, I, I mean, that last, I know this is, went well beyond your question, but that, you know, that last passage of Galatians 6, man, to me, that is, if you want to know what is Galatians about, that, that's kind of like the bullseye. And of course, everything else feeds into that, whether it's Paul's own autobiography, chapters one and two, whether it's his statement and theological explanation of being made right with God by faith and you know, how that, how that fulfills God's promises to Abraham in chapter three in the beginning of four, whether that speaks to his history with the Galatians and what to do about the troublemakers in the end of chapter four, or even the practical exhortation. Now, how do we live in chapter five in the beginning of six? All of it stems from this core foundational reality of new creation and the death to the old through the cross of Jesus. That's beautiful. I remember a couple of years back, I interviewed you on the spirit as God's presence in the world today. Mm, and mm-hmm. uh, last two questions here. Um, the fruit of the spirit in 522, if you were just to say a couple of interesting things 
to you about such a phrase, the fruit of the spirit and what they are. Maybe you could talk on that for a minute and then we'll go to the last question. And we'll be finished. Oh, good question. Okay. So I like, I like this language. So I'll say uh, three quick points. First, fruit is organic. It grows out of an existing seed. It has to come from that seed itself. And in my view, this, it's like saying the seed in us is the spirit of God. And when the spirit of God is implanted within people, it, the spirit will generate these things, period. So what Paul is not saying is, you know what? You're, you're supposed to be good people, so try really hard to do this stuff. Mm. It's exactly not what he's saying. <laughs> Excuse me. What he is saying is the spirit of God lives within you. And if you yield to that spirit, he will generate these things within you. So there's an organic metaphor. What it means is that the power and the initiative lies within God's presence itself. Point one. Point two, these are character qualities, right? These are not activities necessarily, but they are attributes. So one of the first priorities for any believer is the cultivation of the character of Jesus. So when you talk about these terms, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, like the those are markers of maturity because precisely because they match the character of the Lord generated by the spirit point one character point two. And then the third point I want to make is that the way to determine whether or not the character has been formed is in the context of community, mm. right? The, the, the context of Galatians five, the, the way that it is, introduced in verse 15. If you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Clearly, it's a community issue. And even at the end, verse 26, let's not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. Mm. Character is not an issue that is manifest in isolation, mm -hmm. right? Character is an issue that's manifest in the context of human relationships, mm. where it is manifestly more difficult. <laughs> I mean, it's like, it's, it's a lot easier for me to love someone from a distance than it uh -huh. is to love someone up close where we're rubbing elbows and bumping shoulders and like something they say kind of sets me off or something they do makes me think a certain way. Like, man, the, the reality is these qualities have to be put on display in the context of the body of Jesus, the family of God. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's even biblical. So for instance, God doesn't just say, I love you and then do nothing about it. But you know, what does Paul say in Romans five? This is, you know, before we were, you know, while, while we were still sinners, he, he loved us. He gave himself for us. Like the evidence of love is in the demonstration. The evidence of patience is not just what you think in your mind. It's the way you respond to a brother or to a sister when they're pushing your buttons. Right? The, the evidence of kindness is not just your thoughts. The evidence of kindness is the manifestation of those thoughts through obedient action. So I think what I would say about the fruit is like, look, yes, they're organic. They're generated by the spirit. Two, they are all about the formation of character and Christ-likeness in the believer. Number three, the way that that Christ-likeness is manifest is through interpersonal relationships. And that that becomes the test 
of the degree to which we have been conformed to the image of Jesus and also can help reveal our blind spots. Like, oh, you know, have you ever had one of those moments where, you know, yeah. sometimes for me, it's with my wife or it's my kids <laughs> or it's somebody that, you know, we're working with in one of our churches. It's like, oh, yeah, see, let me let me take responsibility right now. That wasn't good. I apologize. Let me own that. Lord, forgive me. And it, it shows us, right, where we still have to go. Mm-hmm. And I think that's by design. You can't reach maturity as a believer without the people of God. Mm-hmm. Now, again, I say that as a general statement. Obviously, there are some people locked away in prisons and whatever else. Like, the Lord will care for them. I have no question about it. But I think Paul's ideal and his intention and hope as he writes these letters is that the people understand, like, man, together you're being conformed to the image of the Son of God. And that means I need you and you need me because we, we, we can't really get a grip on the maturity and the development of our character until, man, we're thrown into life together. Um, and anybody who lives in a family or with roommates or, you know, like, you know this, you know, you know this by experience. Like, when you live with people and you're around them all the time, it, it will bring out in you the irritations, the frustrations, the disappointments. And then what do you do with that? Well, you know, by the spirit, we put to death the deeds of the body. By the spirit, you know, we yield to the leadership of the Lord. We submit, we repent, we believe, and we follow. So, that, yeah, I think that's a very important section there, uh, which in Paul's mind is giving the Galatians a grid for like, okay, if we're not going to live according to the law, then how do we live? And Paul says, well, here's how you do it. You submit to the Lord Jesus. You be full of the spirit. You walk in step, generating the character of Jesus, and then you mature together, manifesting those fruit in such a way that it brings maturity, fulfillment to the the commands of the Lord, and then, you know, the completion of the mission of Jesus. Again, I, I realize that in this next question, you've already pretty much answered it, but maybe you could just cap it all off. This is the last question. There are people listening to this right now. Maybe somebody's driving down the road at work. Maybe somebody's digging a ditch right now. Maybe there's a mom washing dishes as she listens right now. What, using the book of Galatians, what would you want to speak to them? Yeah, and and I think here is where I will go back to maybe the most well-known passage of Galatians, right? Chapter 2 verses 20 and 21. And Paul says that I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. No matter where you are right now, no matter what you're doing, these things are true for you just as they were for the Apostle Paul almost 2,000 years ago. He's not loved more than you. And his purpose, right, in life is not different in one sense than yours. There, every single son or daughter of God is loved, valued, and commissioned. You may not always think that. You might look at your circumstances and wonder, What is the point of this? Listen, there's a point to everything in the kingdom. Mm -hmm. 
And this is why Paul encourages people throughout his letters to just trust Jesus, to follow him, to obey the Lord by faith, to walk in the spirit, because you never know. Eric, I remember you telling me stories about in your life, working on a construction site, uh, going into a, a porta potty just to, to pray and seek heaven. Listen, those things are real. Those things matter. And even when no one sees you or no one knows your name or no one has any idea that you exist, God knows. And that's enough. And for Paul, it all begins there. He loved me. He gave himself for me. And as a result, I know right now that he is living in me and wants to live through me so that every element of your day can be full of value when it comes to the Lord. And I know that can be difficult to swallow. I remember talking to my wife, you know, we have four kids. And at one point in time, we had three kids, five years old and under, you know, diapers all over the place. And, 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 and just, it was a very crushing experience for her walking through that. But God showed her eventually, like, this mattered to me. It was important to me, the way you loved your children, the way you bore with those hardships and those sufferings. They all count in the kingdom. And you got to realize right now, wherever you are, you're there on assignment. The Lord is seeking not only to commune with you, to cultivate an intimate relationship with you, but to demonstrate his own love, presence, and power through your life. Think about what Paul says. Christ lives in me. <laughs> that is absolutely true. Whether you're preaching on a platform in front of thousands or whether you're washing dishes in front of nobody, Christ lives in you. So everything you can do can everything you do can be offered to him as worship and out of a heart of love and obedience. Eric, you and I both have have read a book, you know, by a, by a man named Brother Lawrence, mm-hmm. right? And this man was a devoted believer hundreds of years ago who had some of his most profound experiences with Jesus peeling potatoes in a kitchen. You know, he, he, peeling potatoes in the presence of God and, and suddenly have to lie down face, fo- face down on the floor and just worship because he was aware God's with him. And we need to be aware God's with us. And you might feel like you've been called into something you can't handle. Listen, I want to encourage you today. It's not true. Wherever Jesus calls you, he sustains you. He empowers you to walk with him. So direct your gaze today. Just, just face him. A good dear friend of ours, you know, Bob Gladstone would always say, use every trial, every hardship, every opportunity, just as an opportunity to face the Lord, to just look at him and wait on him and listen to the voice of the spirit in your life. None of the concerns we face in our lives are unknown to Jesus. He's absolutely aware and he's absolutely interested in seeing you and me glorify his name, whether in the dark, whether in secret, whether in front of men, women, or any combination of those things. Nothing is irrelevant to the way the kingdom wants to work in and through your lives. So yeah, I would leave you with that word of encouragement. Christ lives in you. Now do what you can to let him live. Do what you can to cooperate with his life and to express it in the context of your world.
Man, thank you so much for, for coming on. So rich in every way, theologically, spiritually. Again, let me say to you guys who are listening, Crucifixion and New Creation is the name of Jeff's book. You can get it on Amazon, and I encourage you to pick it up. Uh, thanks again, man, for coming on. Eric, it's a joy, and as always, so grateful for our friendship. You know, we go back some years, and um, you know, I just want to honor you and the work you're doing for the kingdom and the way that you're encouraging folks um, to love Jesus and, and to do it well. And uh, yeah, you know, the, the book is pretty academic. This is not a, like a devotional one. So if, you, <laughs> if you're looking for something more kind of devotional, I don't want you to waste your $40 or whatever it is. But hey, if you're the kind of person that loves to get into, you know, biblical studies, theology, you like footnotes and all that, then okay, you probably enjoy it. But I don't want to mislead your listeners today. <laughs> it's kind of thick. It's, it's absolutely a little bit more on the academic side. So, but man, grateful to be here. And as always, uh, however, however can help. Happy to do that. And God bless you, Brooke, the girls, and, and everybody in your orbit right now. 